Hi, my name is Ash Williams. I am non-binary. I specifically identify as gender fluid and I am pagan. I primarily consider myself to be Hellenic and Celtic pagan. I am currently the president of the Pagan Society here at UA and this is my capstone project for 401 World Views. Uh, I am joined here today by my friend Ryan Tucker who has very graciously offered to co-host this podcast with me. Howdy. All right, so I'm going to go ahead and get this started. Um, so I do want to acknowledge that this is a podcast on gender and Norse. Um, I won't say that it's on Norse paganism so much as that it's on Norse society. Um, when I started this project, I wanted it to be on Norse paganism. That was my focus. I really wanted this to kind of be about Norse lore, the practices surrounding it. But I ended up finding a lot more on Norse society, but they are pretty closely entwined. So without further ado, let's get right into it. All right. So most of our Norse lore is going to come from the Prose Edda, which is considered the first writing of Norse lore in the world. Um, I let me double check that year because I do not remember that off the top of my head. Uh, da, 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 where is it? There we go. It was written in 1595. Ooh, that's a pretty recent uh, source. Yeah, in fact, it's so recent that it was written after the Norse converted to Christianity. Oh, wow. Yeah, so... Tell me more about that. Yeah, so that's actually been one of the biggest struggles that I've found in Norse and the Norse stuff that I've been looking at is that most of it was written down after the conversion to Christianity. And so, as you know, Christianity had very different ideals, particularly, you know, in pre-modern times than other pagan religions did. Um, I apologize if you heard that. That was my beloved cat, uh, who I did say would probably be joining us in the studio today as well. Um, but yeah, so the, um, the Christian conversion was a big thing that really hindered me throughout this. Uh, so we do tend to kind of take the prose edda with a grain of salt. Um, just because it was written by a Christian monk. Uh, that is what Snorri was. Um, so the biggest example that we really see with that is the Ragnarok myth and um, the rise of Loki. Uh, before that, we Loki had kind of been a cursed spirit. And then you get to um, the Ragnarok myth and you really start to see a lot of these parallels between um, Christianity and Norse paganism. So that's when you see Loki as sort of the devil figure and you see Balder as kind of the, I'm trying to remember Christian terms. I haven't been Christian in such a long time. Jesus figure. Um, and then kind of Odin as a stand-in for the Christian God. Okay. Um, and you do kind of see that reflected in a bunch of other myths as well. Um, but the Ragnarok myth, the writing of that is where we can really pinpoint that as beginning. Um, I did find a lot of really interesting stuff on uh, Loki, just kind of the othering of, of Loki. Um, let me actually find that source. Oh, I actually have that pulled up right in front of me. Uh, so one of the biggest themes throughout Norse lore is Loki's dual identity. So Loki isn't just a god in the traditional sense that we experience with the other religions. So like with I know you're really familiar with Roman and Hellenic lore, which I am as well. Yes. Yes, because you're a classics major, yes? I am. Yeah. I study Latin and Greek. 
university. Yeah, and like I said, I primarily consider myself to be Hellenic pagan with a mix of Celtic practices as well. So that that's our area of expertise. So I would say that, you know, it's not quite like those gods that we see in that. It would be more like so Loki was considered to be a giant. So I I think the parallel that between that and Hellenism would be kind of maybe Titan. Um like Prometheus and Epimetheus. Um, I, I feel like, I yeah. I can sort of see, uh, you know. That, that Loki, dual identity. In addition, to, in addition to having that kind of dual identity, uh, Loki as sort of a titanish figure and also sort of as a, um, a pre-Christian figure. Yeah. Like, considering that the prose that it was written by a... A Christian. Uh, a Christian. I can imagine... Uh, this whole story of Ragnarok and this whole story of the old gods sort of being a um, precursor to a new accepted Christian religion. Yes, absolutely. And that is something that we see. Um, I just kind of find it interesting as that Loki in specific was chosen to be the Antichrist, the devil figure, uh, when he was so obscure before. And I wholeheartedly believe that that is because of his dual identity. So not only as both giant and god, but Loki was also gender fluid and bisexual. Um, I am using those terms a little bit more liberally in the modern sense in that Loki could, well, actually more in the old sense, I guess, of gender fluid, in that Loki could change between male and female and was known to have both male and female lovers. Yes, and like, I wouldn't say this is an exclusive thing that is exclusive to Loki. Uh, well, I'm not so caught up on Norse lore and whatnot, the prose yeah. But like, for instance, uh, oftentimes in the uh, Greek and Roman world, uh, you had gods and whatnot that could embody one or both genders. Uh, um, oh, what's its name? What's its name comes to mind? Um, I know there were several uh, minor gods. comes to mind. Yeah, there were several minor gods, but Loki is kind of considered to yeah. be the first major god. And I feel like that that uh, dual nature of being both god and giant is once again another like parallel to Loki being a Christ figure. Yeah, well, the and, Antichrist figure. Yeah. Yeah, because Baldur was the Christ figure. Yes. Uh, Baldur was a son of Odin. Um, basically, I believe the story goes that um, Frigga uh, made all of the plants and animals and stones promise not to hurt Baldur, but she left out mistletoe. Um yes. Who could kill him with mischief? So Loki decided to cause a little bit of mischief, as Loki does, um, especially after this specific myth, and goes to one of Frigga and Odin's other sons and gives him a dart. Um, in some tellings, it's a dart. In some um, some tellings, it's an arrow. Um, I'm just going to use dart to mean a projectile, um, unclear of what kind. Uh, but it's tipped in mistletoe, and he it, shoots him. He shoots him, and he dies. And he does die. Um, and then Loki is then kind of sentenced to eternal punishment, and he's bound with snakes, and he has the snake dripping venom over an acid over his face, and he's, you know, he's tied up, and that's what he sends it to do for. The rest of eternity and then that's where ragnarok kicks off 
Uh, and that's when you kind of see Fenner, uh, Fenner's Wolf and um, the other Harbingers of Ragnarok. So the biggest, the first Harbinger of Ragnarok is Fenner's Wolf breaking free of his chains. The second is Loki breaking free of his. Uh, fun fact, Fenner's Wolf is one of Loki's children. I did kind of remember that, yeah. Yeah, so I really fell in love with um, with kind of Norse lore. Um, so another big thing in Norse lore, I know we've kind of talked about this dual identity, is the idea of the Maiden King. Uh, so that was something that was brought up to me in uh, one of my interviews that I did for this project. Uh, it was done by Toby. I don't know if you know, you know who Toby is. He... Uh, he's Norse pagan. He was one of the other founding members of the pagan society with me. And he told me about, you know, this idea of a quote unquote maiden king. Uh, it's a quote unquote, I'm using this term very loosely in the biological sense, woman who ruled as a king. Um, if we're projecting modern ideas of gender onto it, then possibly transgender. Um, could be butch lesbian. We don't really know. Could be non-binary. We don't really know because they didn't really have those same ideas of gender. Um, so that was very interesting. I'm going to see what notes I had on that because I know I had a few. I know that it was in Beowulf. Um, yeah, Be um, Beowulf. I can't remember what story it was Toby told me about. Um, it does. It, it, it's a myth. Uh, Toby had presented it to me as being something that had actually happened, but it is, it's a story. Um, but it does kind of, you know, show that it's okay to be the opposite, well, quote unquote opposite, um, way, as long as you're biologically female. Um, so that was something that was considered acceptable. You could be biologically a woman and you could operate in a man's place in society. But if you were biologically male, you couldn't operate in a woman's place in society. That's a, that's actually a pretty novel concept for such an old time. Yeah, um, it, it, it's very reminiscent of kind of modern takes where trans women bear so much of the brunt of mainstream transphobia. Uh, yeah. So you'll see like Dylan Mulvaney and you'll see all of these laws that are like protecting girls. And then they'll straight up just use pictures of trans men who have started their transitions and be like, do you want this in your in the woman's bathroom? And it's like, if you keep enforcing these laws that say that you have to use whatever bathroom you were assigned it based on your sex assigned at birth, then yeah, he's going to be in the woman's bathroom. You don't want him in the woman's bathroom. He is a man. Uh, but yeah, that, that's... Sensibilities are just kind of always interesting to see because we often think of in our modern society as all of this, you know, gender discourse that has become very popular and very mainstream nowadays, just we see it as a very new thing. But in reality, a lot of this is like been a continuing process for hundreds of years and people have had very different ideas of gender throughout human history and that is absolutely why i chose this topic um because i am president of the pagan society and i'm also a women's studies minor with a focus on gender i wanted to kind of combine my two big passions outside of psychology into one and i have absolutely loved every minute of this project and everything i've learned absolutely um so 
from there, I think this is a good place to kind of talk about the Valkyries as a third gender. Okay. Uh, so it's, I wouldn't really say that it's non-binary in the modern sense of the word. Uh, it's very much a word that has been used throughout history to mean different things. Uh, a bit like bisexual used to mean bisexual in the bi-gender or hermaphroditic sense. Um, those are completely different things. Those are not labels that you have to use with one another. I will say that. Um, but that is something that has kind of see I've seen. Um, it is non-binary in the fact that it doesn't fit into the, the neat little binary of femininity and masculinity. Um, Valkyries were shield maidens. They were Odin's warriors. They were kind of this third path between homemaker or spinster. Um, they were a big, big part of Norse Lord. They were the ones that were responsible for bringing souls to Valhalla. Um, they fought alongside Odin. They fought in Ragnarok, uh, the battles there. Um, well, so I thought that was a particularly interesting thing. What I'm getting from this is, um, would you say that, like, of course, we don't have a whole annotated bibliography that we can just go through and just like list out every you know source and opinion on this podcast but uh from what you looked at would you say that um the idea of like or like the norse image of women was they can be as they can inhabit like as much of a like the archetypal man's role as they wanted but like they're also fine you know, existing in their, you know, traditional, like, female role in the household, but... I wouldn't and... really say it in those terms. Uh, there was a lot more freedom in Norse society than there is in even some modern societies where there's those really strict gender roles, and that is something I absolutely touch on later, uh, because I have... There's this incredible pipeline from, um, you'll see, like, Norse paganism, Celtic paganism, uh, to the alt-right, and the gender roles that are really instilled with that. And then the alt-right gender roles tend to be really heavily from the Bible, which circles all the way back around to Norse paganism and everything we know being from after the, the switch to Christianity. Like, I can see a lot of also, like, the influence of Hollywood and our conception of uh, Norse tribes and Norse society just being entirely skewed. And I imagine, like, Prosetta is one of the very few sources we have, like, from the area on that kind of society. And it's very late as well. Yeah. And made with a very clear agenda. Yeah, it was after the fall of the Viking societies um, and the Viking. Um, so, so I guess it just left Hollywood with a lot of uh, yeah. um, freedom to just do kind of whatever they wanted. And we kind of have a very skewed idea of Norse society and just. It has. It, yeah. So and like I said in the very beginning when I was talking about the prose Edda and how it was written after the conversion to Christianity, that's not even since like modern times in Hollywood. That is something that we saw with the creation of the prose Edda. So like I said, I take it with not even a grain of salt. I take it with an entire shaker of salt. Like we don't look at the prose Edda as any sort of authority whatsoever on what was definitively believed. In, oh um, yeah, no, absolutely. I is, look at that in at Norse a, lore. We look at it as a Norse lore book. Yeah. But like, 
whether anybody actually believed exactly what it said in there to a T, or like just how much of it is true, just how much of it is authentic, and how much of it is just kind of haphazardly strung together is. That's why my, so that's actually the very reason that I had to shift from focusing solely on Norse paganism to looking at Norse society as a whole, uh, which actually ended up being a really, really interesting move for me um, because I was able to tie it back to a lot of those modern ideas that I talked about as well. I can also imagine like, because from my experience of Nordic and uh, early Northern Germanic culture, um, my experience of it is like based off of entirely uh, Roman sources. Yeah. And you can tell in a lot of those writings, they don't quite have a solid grasp on what they believe either. And so they interpret it in their, like through the lens of Roman paganism. And they'll say like, oh, they have a belief system where Mercury is the head god. And uh, yeah, and you saw that with the conversion from um, the from being primarily Hellenic paganism in the Mediterranean to Roman paganism. Yes. Um, because I do actually follow some of the older gods from even before pre-Hellenic. I usually just say Hellenic because that's rather than Greek, because that's the primary time period that of deities that I work with. Yeah. And even like within like the term like Hellenic or Roman, etc. Oftentimes these places often imported gods from elsewhere in the world as well. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, Romans were pretty big on that actually. My matron deity, Hecate, um, is actually originally from Turkey. And so, you know, it's kind of an, um, an amalgamation of, you know, all of these different, of all of these different gods. And you do see that with Norse and some of the Slavic paganism as well. Um, that is highly, highly, highly specialized. And I really wanted to focus on Norse paganism because it is so mainstream. Um, when I first sat down to do this topic, I was actually going to do Celtic paganism. And then I went looking for sources and found absolutely nothing. Um, and that's partially because of the Romans. And that's partially because Celtic paganism and Celtic pagans, they thought that the Fae would steal information if you wrote it down. So we view everything from the lens of somebody who did write it down, who had a different belief system. As mentioned, I believe also probably uh, the spread of the church as well might have also had something to do with it. I know. Yeah, absolutely. I don't have any sources to back that up, but I know that at least uh, in terms of Russian pagan folklore, a lot of that information was either burned by the church or was has it's entered into this like in, corrupted amalgamation of Christianity and. Uh, paganism sort of just fused yeah and you absolutely like i said you see that with the alt-right pipeline as well yeah um, which i do have some really interesting sources on that but i do want to circle back around to uh gender and kind of norse paganism yeah. for a minute. All right. let's recenter yeah so recentering back onto norse paganism um i promise this will make this will make this will all make sense in a minute this is just more some more background information so um within norse paganism uh there was this kind of folk magic called satyr which was exclusively practiced by women mm-hmm. unless you were odin odin practiced satyr folks odin the big manly man the man's man the chief god practiced women's magic um so that is like a huge huge thing it was seen as the realm of the woman um so your goddesses of witchcraft freya um, cats, number 13, uh, that is all women's stuff, fertility magic. 
She was a goddess of fertility, war, and witchcraft. Um, her sacred animal is the Norwegian uh, forest cat, the skog cat. Uh, fun little facts for anyone listening. My parents have a skog cat named Butterbean. He is 16, and uh, he used to weigh 16 pounds. Um, so uh, there is a lot of, you know, these you see these very heavily ingrained gender roles. Uh, like I said, a woman could practice um, more male-centered paganism, but a man who practiced satyr, he was ridiculed. Uh, there was actually this thing in Norse paganism where Odin was making fun of Loki for getting pregnant with Slantinir, the eight-legged horse, who, fun fact, was Odin's mount. So Odin really didn't have a leg to stand on for making fun of Loki for... Yeah, right. <laughs> that was funny. Okay, but he, so Loki goes, ha ha, you got pregnant. So Odin basically goes, ha ha, you got pregnant like a girl. And so Loki turns around and goes, at least I don't use magic like a woman. Um, so that's more or less. Um, and that is something that I kind of see echoed with experiences of modern Norse pagans as well. Um, I talked with Toby and he practices Seder as part of his practice, but Toby is, um, FTM trans. He's, he's female to male. Um, he's been out for a few years. Um, he's been practicing Norse pagan for Norse paganism for several years. Um, but his primary gods are Loki, Thor, and Odin, uh, specifically Thor and Odin, and he did say this, that he specifically chose them because they are the man's gods. They are the man's man. He did it because he wants to be seen as masculine, because he feels like he has to prove himself. And that we did, I did ask him, you know, would you see yourself picking a different god, maybe to have as your patron or your main deity, your main three, if you had to you know wore cis you know either way and he said yeah which i think is really interesting because you know um the idea of performativity and gender isn't a new thing for us at all um i i you know i've mentioned that i'm a women's studies minor i took queer theory last semester i'm trans i feel like every day you know i can't express things that are too overly feminine because in addition to being gender fluid I'm also a butch lesbian, so I'm supposed to be, you know, heavily into masculinity. I am sitting here with my bubblegum pink head gaming headset that I'm going to use whilst I play Stardew Valley. Because I'm allowed to have feminine interests, but I'm not binary and I'm AFAB, so I'm allowed to do these things. It's not seen as being making me less than. AMAB non-binaries, trans women. They have to constantly prove themselves. And I have to, you doing it, it doesn't seem like it's it's not the people don't see it as a statement. No, they don't see it as a statement. They, it's kind of a, oh yeah, you're allowed to like what you like. But when you cross what's expected, then it is something. Yeah. Else. Well, with so femininity and being a map is a double edged sword. Mm -hmm. Um my ex girlfriend was a very masculine trans woman. Um she was pre transition. Uh, she's about as masculine as I am, and I'm a butch lesbian, so to give you an idea. Um, like, we had matching cargo shorts. Mm -hmm. um, so she felt that if she was being too feminine, that she was being, um, quote-unquote, a parody of a woman, that she, that's what she would be seen as, uh, that she was trying too hard. And you see that a lot of people saying that with Dylan Mulvaney, where they're like, oh, she's making fun of what it means to be a woman. 
whereas you know if you are interested in more traditionally masculine things you know it's you know you're not a woman you're you're faking at this like you're always trying to have to toe that line between uh society thinking that you're overdoing it or society thinking that uh you're not good enough you're damn you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't and i think it's just there's so much there always is something to criticize and i feel like that's something that you really see with more binary trans people which toby did echo um because i identify as trans i experienced dysphoria but i have such different experiences from other transgender non-binary individuals and even binary trans individuals and so i think that that's really interesting and so I'd be able to talk to Toby about different experiences in religion. You know, I feel absolutely comfortable venerating Lady Freya, you know, the goddess who embodies femininity and having her candle on my altar next to Lord Thor's, you know, the goddess, the god who embodies masculinity. You know, my matron is considered to be the embodiment of femininity. My patron is considered to be the embodiment of masculinity. I'm allowed to do both because I'm non-binary. Hmm. You know, I, I think that's just so interesting for binary trans people because you know they do get so much shit. You know, like trans men who trans men who wear dresses are like, well, why are, why are you even transitioning? You know, like uh, when it comes to like like back on Odin real quick, like when it comes to him like pursuing this, you know feminine sort of magic uh it's sort of like do you think the author was like the author of the president was sort of trying to make a statement about either odin or about gender roles and like as a whole given that it was the 16th century and it was a christian monk i absolutely do not believe that it was on purpose i mean it could have been on purpose if he was trying to like if he was potentially, I don't know, trying to make some sort of statement of, well, Jesus is Lord, and this is what they believe, and look, oh, their God, their masculine God practice feminine things, but... Yeah, um, it, it's particularly interesting because, you know, Odin was also meant to be kind of, you know, quote-unquote, their equivalent of God, yeah. the Christian God, that is. Um, but at the same time, like, I... Yeah. I, I haven't read the pose yeah. the prose edit from start to finish yeah so let me ask you this you're a cis man yes yes you wear hoop earrings i do do you feel comfortable doing that just just in general not depends on the uh, do you feel secure in your masculinity oh i yes i feel very secure in my masculinity yeah see i as a non-binary person don't feel secure in my masculinity wearing anything other than just small studs or fake gauges and I think that that's just a really, really interesting thing of kind of, it is different when you are cis. And so I fully believe that Odin, be, you know, being considered one of the gods, you know, the man's man. Oh, so uh, you think there might be some sort of level of, uh, well, Odin knows he's a man. That, where everyone's like, yeah, he's the man's god. Yeah, sure he exactly. Magic, you know, he's the man's He's the man's man god. He can do what he wants. That's my point. But like, if, for instance, we were dealing with like a trans mask person today and they wanted to wear their big hoop earrings and a dress well they're doing the same sort of thing as odin was but you know like 
that's that's some sort of statement or that's problematic because if you're transitioning to mask, you gotta be fully masculine. Yeah. There's it's a, there's a double standard there. Yeah, there absolutely is. Um, and like I said, non-binary people who are unaligned like myself kind of get a little bit more freedom in that. But you know, cis people get the most freedom, and then cis people are allowed to break gender norms more so than trans people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Like you know how we've seen Harry Styles on the cover of Vogue in a dress, but if a trans man does it, that's actually something I never considered. Uh, That cis people—it's so backwards what we would think that uh, cis people are allowed to break gender norms, and it's it's much more accepted for yeah cis people to break gender norms than. Uh, like trans people are. Yeah, and it's more acceptable for AFAB people to break gender norms than AMAP people because if a cis yeah. girl is breaking gender norms and is very masculine, but she's straight, she's a tomboy. It's, uh, yeah, there's like. If a cis guy who's hetero, who's straight, is breaking gender norms, he's considered a sissy. It's considered less than to be female or feminine. I guess, like, for a long time, perhaps society considered like female gender roles to be like you know the less important one or the less powerful one and so just kind of a lot of societies women moving up to more masculine roles as a step up and then moving towards more feminine roles as a step down a lot of societies did um but what i find really really interesting is that norse society pre-conversion to christianity didn't really do that um so i read the original laws uh they were translated in 1935 i believe i could verify that year but i don't really feel like looking at it um and they're called the gula thing and frosted thing laws um the copy of them is like right over there you guys can't see it but they're on my table probably about six inches from my computer um it's a big thick book and i was reading about you know inheritance laws and what to do if you kill someone women and daughters are allowed to inherit property that's kind of crazy yeah, Norse society was so progressive for its time. And it's just absolutely fascinating. You know, I'm pre-law, I'm pagan, and I'm trans. So that kind of was, that was kind of the holy grail for me. I guess it kind of uh, goes to show that these ideas that we have ingrained in our society of uh, women subordinate, uh, like, housekeeper and man, um strong breadwinner like these archetypal roles that our society had for a long time are not inherent or natural necessarily in society yeah society can come up with ideas about gender and sexuality etc in a much like in very different ways it just depends upon you know like it, they can just vary depending upon you know where it actually comes about yeah i'm going to send you uh judith butler's imitation and gender insubordination because I think you're going to find that really, really interesting. And that was one of my big theory pieces for this. Um, So I will say that there was a big shift in gender norms from the very, I'm trying to think of the word, Um, liberal, that's, that's not the word I'm thinking of. It begins with an F, but I can't, I can't think of it. So I'm going to go with the word liberal, uh, gender roles that you see with Norse paganism and Norse society. And when you see that conversion to Christianity, they're much more conservative and, you know, women lose a lot of their rights and it's kind of that secondary. And then you only have the homemaker or the spinster wife. Um, And then you really see that kind of echoed with um, 
the alt-right pipeline. So Norse paganism is the fastest growing um, religion, at least in Iceland. Um, it's uh, among the world, basically. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, we're also seeing a pretty sharp increase of alt-right, yeah. especially in the U.S. And unfortunately, those are I mean, I guess, linked to each other. Like, I guess we can't say the rise of the alt-right is a direct consequence of no, all it, of what. But we could still say that, like, we can identify a couple of things, such as, you know, this very Hollywoodified, like, idea of the Viking as, you know, this big, strong, uh, hyper-masculine man who's, like, the epitome of masculinity. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, with none of, like, you know, the uh, modern, like, sensibilities that have kind of, I don't know, quote-unquote, uh, denaturalized man. Yeah, and um, one of the big things... Kind of, yeah. Yeah, so um, trigger warning... Uh, I will go ahead and uh, bookmark this with another trigger warning um, and the timestamp. Um, we will be talking about Nazi, uh, Nazis and neo-Nazis for the next couple minutes, folks. Um, so the Nazis did actually co-opt a lot of um, Norse imagery. Um, so the there's a handful of runes that they co-opted. Um, the Nazi lightning bolts started out as runes, the runic S, basically. Um, the swastika was originally a uh, Norse symbol. Um, it also has some Eastern, uh, some East Asian roots. Yeah, the swastika does have a couple of like roots in different places. But uh, go on. Um, but it was kind of you know this chosen people of, and there's a lot of like neo Nazis who use who use Norse paganism as a guise for their hate. Um, like even in popular culture, like yeah. in. Marvel movies, they even reference that kind of stuff. And I remember the first Captain America movie, the uh, evil guys, Hydra, were looking into old Norse, you know, uh, mythology. Yeah, I've seen that movie, but it's been a long, long time. I didn't really grow up with Marvel. Um, So I did manage to find um, a really interesting article called Swiffers and Swastikas, um, which kind of talked about um, the alt-right and these gender norms that you really see. Uh, and how those are really rooted in Christianity. And they're really rooted in the Bible, particularly like Leviticus. Um, yeah. I haven't been Christian in like 15 years, uh, so you would know it better than I do. I've actually recently read Leviticus for a project. But basically, it really reminded me of, you know, how those gender roles really shifted in Norse society once Christianity became the dominant religion and, you know, kind of how we rewrote the narrative of Norse lore and we're starting to rewrite it in Norse lore. Um, and which is part of the reason I chose to do this project is because I kind of wanted to be like, Hey, look, trans people have existed since time immemorial. Gender roles have not always been like this, but. Gender roles are not an absolute and, uh, yeah, ne- but- uh, they, uh, they're not a fixed thing no. that is natural about society. No, and They're open to change they absolutely are. Um, and one of the things that I really wanted to make sure I touched on was kind of the hate symbols uh, that are used. Um, you've seen our friend Lane's uh, tattoo, rune tattoos from his forearms, yeah. right? So Lane didn't know this when he got his tattoos. 
but two of them that were used to create one of his bind ruins, uh, which is basically a protection symbol that's a combination of multiple runes, have been co-opted by neo-Nazis. Oh, that's he, so fun. He didn't know that until the car ride over to his appointment because I didn't know what he was getting. I was the one that had to tell him. Uh, let me see if I can actually find my transcript of my interview with Lane because I don't want to misquote what he said because he said it, he just said it so eloquently. Uh, got along in the box really quick, folks. I apologize for this delay. I probably should have pulled this up before. You can always edit it in post. That's not it. Where did I put it? I'm trying to find it. I just saw it. Liner interview transcript. Uh, I'm going to pull up the, the PDF version. All right. There we go, folks. Sorry. It's 25 pages. Um, yeah, so Lane was raised pagan, primarily Celtic and Norse. So he wasn't really raised with those as being um, hate symbols. To him, those were protection symbols. Um, I'm trying to find this. Um, sorry, my computer has decided to be, yeah. Um, yeah, so he just, in the interview, he described what his tattoos look like. Um, so he does make sure to mention that he does not identify with any white supremacist, neo-Nazi groups. Um, yeah. Um, Tiawas and Athala were the two runes that he used, uh, justice and inheritance. Uh, to him, it's because the only thing he inherited from his father, his biological father, is his sense of justice. Um, you know, he comes from a divorced family. Um, I'm mentioning this because this is very important to him. I know you and I already both know this because he's our friend. Um, he he makes sure to kind of explain it. Um, I'm going to kind of spare y'all his story because I don't want to violate his privacy. Um, but he did get them in, you know, easy to conceal places because he does recognize that, hey, these are kind of associated with alt-right groups. So they are in his forearms. He's usually got long sleeves on. Um, he doesn't want to give people the wrong impression. No, he doesn't. Um, yeah, his his father has, uh, and dad, well, his brother and dad both have these uh, runic tattoos. Uh, his dad has a, a, you know, it's not just, you know, a rune. It's actually like, it looks like a rune stone, which are primarily used for divination, um, similar to tarot cards. Uh, it's also the runic alphabet. So what we're saying is that uh, these runes, although they've been co-opted co by the alt-right as, you know, hate symbols in certain cases, they were not, you know, th these are not the original meaning. These no. Are roots. no. These are very different roots and, you know, actual. Yeah, yeah these have roots. actual meaning to actual people. And this is something that has been co-opted. And I really didn't feel like I could discuss, you know, Norse paganism 
and ideas of masculinity and femininity. And, um, you know, I, I couldn't talk about that and not talk about all right. I mean, we've seen in society many times just uh, different organizations or groups of people co-opting certain symbols that are often like highly venerated and using them as, you know, for their own purposes. So like, you might even have some, some, uh, some group like that is unapologetically hateful, like, like the Westboro Baptist Church using the cross as a hate symbol. But yeah. like, it doesn't mean the cross necessarily originates as a hate symbol or like any, any symbol can be co-opted as a hate symbol. Yes. Unfortunately, uh, as much as I hate to say that any, nothing is sacred. Nothing. It's not even that nothing is sacred. It's that any symbol can be co-opted by anyone for any meaning. And I hate, I genuinely hate saying that. And these yeah. genuinely are, you know, they have a rich history. Um, I wasn't able to do too much research into ruins and the alt-right. I really wanted to just kind of focus on, you know, these generals. Um, I didn't want to kind of branch out into all of the history. And if I um, end up turning this into a series, I absolutely am going to talk about talk about the runic history uh the runic history um i'm gonna do some more research on that i may turn this into a multi-episode podcast uh just as a personal project um but yeah yeah um do you have any thoughts any questions that i haven't already discussed anything you might think is relevant um i had a question a while back and i think any final thoughts? Anything you think I didn't discuss? Uh, I think we delved into a lot of things uh, very well, very in-depth. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so if you guys have any questions on the Pagan server who are listening to this, um, we have just finished about finished talking about neo-Nazism. We ended around the 41-minute mark. Um, you are welcome to DM me. You are welcome to ask them questions, welcome to put them in the Norse channel. Um, whatever you need to do to get in contact with me or to ask this question, I will answer it to the best of my ability. Uh, if it's about either Toby or Lane, I will answer it to the best of my ability after consulting them um, in order to respect their privacy. So thanks to y'all for listening.